You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. Three of Core Curriculum, a new project from the Christian Humanist Radio Network, where we have weekly discussions about the texts that make up Columbia University's core reading list in the humanities. I'm Victoria Reynolds Farmer. I'm one of the co-founders of the Christian Feminist Podcast, and I live in Woodstock, Georgia, with my husband Michael of the Christian Humanist Podcast. With me today are regulars from two other shows on the network. First, we have Coyle Neal of the City of Man podcast. He's a political science professor from Southern Missouri, where he lives with his wife, Alexis, also a panelist on The Christian Feminist, and their two sons. We also have Jordan Poss, who appears frequently on both City of Man and the Sectarian Review, and is a history instructor at Piedmont Technical College in South Carolina, where he lives with his wife, Sarah, and their three children. Thanks for being here, Coyle and Jordan. You're welcome. Yeah, thanks for having me. Today's episode is going to cover books five and six of the Iliad, so if you haven't read them recently, you might want to pause, go do that, and come back to us. So, guys, when we were emailing back and forth, setting up the logistics of recording this episode uh, and talking about what we were going to do, both of you mentioned that you're big fans of Diomedes as a character. I don't know if it's a gender difference or what, uh, but I'm not that big of a fan of Diomedes as a character. So uh, convince me. Tell me what's appealing to you about him. <laughs> I, I was actually trying to uh, reflect on this a little bit myself. It, it goes back certainly to when I first read the Iliad in college. Uh, me and one of my kind of nerd friends decided that we had kind of like an Odysseus Diomedes thing going on as buddies. Uh, we were like the least physically threatening people in the world. But I, I felt like Diomedes and uh, Odysseus kind of um, matched up to our personalities fairly well. Uh, you know, not to pat ourselves on the back, as you know, eighteen-year-olds or whatever. Uh, I, I think one of the things that appeals about Diomedes is the company that he keeps. Uh, I, I, despite some really legitimate misgivings about certain aspects of his character, I also really uh, enjoy and appreciate the strengths of. Uh, Odysseus and the fact that he and Diomedes get along so famously, um, I think, is part of the appeal. Uh, I also uh, identify with and appreciate the fact that Diomedes is um, relatively taciturn for a Homeric hero. Uh, his speeches are fairly few and fairly short, uh, very often just kind of trash talk or prayers for revenge, uh, as opposed to you know the kind of grandiloquent you know, whining of Achilles or the grandstanding of Agamemnon or someone like that. Uh, that's a also, fair point. I, that, that's, that's something I noticed a, a very long time ago. And I, I noticed on this fresh rereading as well. Um, and, you know, kind of, I think kind of paired neatly with that is the fact that he, he doesn't, he's kind of a man of action and not a lot of talk. Uh, and in book five in particular, um, in book where he, I mean, it is like a masterclass in getting stuff done. Uh, then in book six, which we'll probably talk about later, um, something that I think 
you know, he, he is one of these, you know, kind of hyper-violent Homeric heroes in many ways, but he can actually hang that up in the face of, you know, some kind of older tradition that's been handed down to him, as, as we'll talk about with the incident where he actually realizes that him and uh, a guy on the Trojan side there, you know, what is it, their great-grandfathers had sworn an oath of friendship or something. That That's in stark contrast to someone like Achilles, I think. Um, that's That's what I could come up with for kind of the root of what I like and appreciate about Diomedes. He's, he's also just awesome. And maybe that's kind of the guy aspect of it, but he, he is, uh, let me put it, let me put it this way. One of the great crimes of that terrible Troy movie is that they, you know, try to make it an action movie and then cut Diomedes out of it completely. That's a, that's a really bad move. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm curious who, uh, if if you were casting it and he were going to have been in the Troy movie, and if it had been a better movie, who would you cast as him? Well, they they nailed it with Sean Bean as Odysseus. That is a gigantic missed opportunity. I mean, oh, yeah. the, the the filmmakers just face planted right there. Like you you cast Sean Bean as Odysseus and then don't do anything with him. Come on, uh, man. The rest of the film was cast so so poorly though. I I have no idea who they would have cast um the two the two the two uh i don't want to get sidetracked on that terrible movie uh the two things that they nailed though were <laughs> sean bean as odysseus and uh, orlando bloom as paris because orlando bloom is just so pretty and off-putting of course um, yes agree which, yeah i think i think on some other yep. episode of one of the other shows it might have even been michael described uh orlando bloom as a black hole of charisma um, that that's sounds exactly like what, my husband. <laughs> that's exactly what you need in a Paris. I uh, I guess I'll I'll have to out myself as actually having enjoyed that movie. Uh, I think I might be the only person in this series so far, and I will I will cheerfully admit it is not a great rendition of you know anything Greek, but I thought it was a fun movie. Uh, I, I don't have an answer to who I would have cast, but I, I was sort of curious since you uh, you pointed out they they did leave him behind. Yeah, I don't know who it would be now. Maybe shoot. Chris Evans, I I don't know. <laughs> One of the Chris's anyway. I can I can yeah. never... definitely not Chris Pratt. Well, I was right. gonna also go with a Chris and say Pine. He would not be bad. Yeah, that's fair. An underrated Chris, I think. Yeah, the, mm-hmm. the lesser Chris, the lesser. <laughs> okay, uh, let's let's get a little back on track yeah. here, Coil. No, sorry, so <laughs> that's okay. So Coil, Coil, what do you like about Diomedes? Yeah, I, I mean, uh, he is, he is in, I think, again, it's sort of a guy thing. It, it's certainly where the action of the book really picks up for the first time. So you've got, you know, in, in the beginning, Achilles being kind of a whiny turd and then getting to read everyone's name, which is, you know, as exciting as sitting through graduation is most of the time. And Odysseus giving a speech uh, and then all of a sudden Diomedes is charging through the ranks and tossing around the gods and it's you know it's it's awesome like it it really is this uh, uh this this moment uh, where where everything starts happening uh in a in a poem that is at least on some level about war uh it's really the first time we see something like that happening and it's it's really really well done uh, and it, uh, unfortunately i couldn't find my notes on this i i have them somewhere uh so i had to kind of cobble this together from the internet there, there's even a name for this this is an and i'm probably butchering this because my Greek is non-existent, but uh, this is an Aristia, uh, and I think it's the first one we see in the Iliad. 
So it's uh, uh, basically when everything goes right for you. Uh, so, uh, uh, you know, the, the, the and, and of course for the Greeks, that means in war or in sports, uh, but the athlete who makes, you know, multiple touchdowns in a row and has a great game or the, uh, the, the soldier who, you know, kills everyone in single combat that he runs into or, or whatever, right. It's, it's this, uh, this, this, this stretch of time, uh, where it really does seem like you're blessed by the gods, which of course is, is what they do with, with Diomedes. Although, uh, it's, it's something more than that because he is blessed by Athena, but he is also, uh, wailing on other gods. So it's, it's something beyond even just divine. It's, you know, he, uh, sorry, spoiler alert. He, he knocks around both Aphrodite and Apollo and Ares, uh, kind of in, in order. Uh, and he does all of that. Uh, you 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 don't lose your reason. You don't lose your virtue. He's he's still a decent person while he's doing at least as as decent as anyone is in the Iliad, uh, yeah. and uh, uh, you know he's he's still rational. It's not like he's he's possessed by a spirit or anything like that. It, it's just uh, it's a really good day. So yeah, that's, I I think that's really fun to read and really interesting to kind of dig into. Yeah, I'd agree. That that is really interesting because two of the things that you mentioned as being cool are two of the things that just make me think Diomedes is a jerk. Uh, <laughs> um, which I, I fully admit, I think that my 21st century sensibilities are, are coming into play here. I think there's something that I can't really understand about the the nature of Greek valor and honor because that is not a society I belong to. But um, so I, I want to eventually talk about what it means that he wounds immortals. But before we get to that, uh, there's this section in the beginning of book five around line 140 or so uh, where Diomedes is just mowing through people. And what's interesting to me about that section, other than the fact that there's some pretty gruesome uh, descriptions of, of battle wounds, is... It's this catalog that's a series of pairs of murdered sons, most of whom are mentioned in the context of how they're not completing the legacies of their fathers. Uh, that seems particularly interesting to me, especially because um, the strength that Diomedes is imbued with by Athena is mentioned uh, as the strength of his father. So I want to look at a few lines of that uh, that section and maybe uh talk about fathers and sons a little bit so let's see um so about 145 ish he uh kills i'm gonna butcher these names uh astyanus and hyperion maybe sorry people who know greek um, striking one with the bronze-heeled spear above the nipple and cutting the other beside the shoulder through the collarbone with the great sword so that neck and back were hewn free of shoulder. He left these men and went on after Polyidos and Abbas, sons of the aged dream interpreter Eurydamas. Yet for these two, as they went forth, the old man did not answer their dreams, but Diomedes the powerful slew them. Now he went after the two sons of Phanops, Xanthos and Thoon, full-grown both, but Phanops was stricken in sorrowful old age, nor could breed another son to leave among his possessions. Uh, and it goes on like that, with these pairs of sons and the fathers whose legacies are kind of left open. 
what do you guys think about that and how it affects um, Diomedes as sort of Terminator action movie guy? Does this complicate that idea? I would say so. Um, I mean, but in, in a way that Homer complicates every action throughout the entire book. Um, I, I remembered it. it it's, this, this is probably the third or fourth time I've read through the whole thing, but it's been about 10 years since the last time. And, you know, maybe it's the season of life or something, but I'm noticing much, 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 much more how almost every action uh, accomplished by one of the heroes that is both praiseworthy, as in the case, I, I think we're pretty clearly meant to admire Diomedes here, uh, or whether it's, you know, um, cowardly as when uh, he is wounded by an archer, which he, he certainly reacts to as if that's as if that's um, just the worst, right? Um, any action that, that Homer depicts is very often paired with just at least a one or two line aside about who is involved that actually takes a lot more time to humanize everybody involved than, you know, like a modern action movie, um, which I think sets Homer apart. So there's a, you know, I mean, I, we, we borrowed the Greek word for this for a reason, I think, pathos, right? I mean, it's not... It's not simply about the excellence of Diomedes. There is there is a real world consequence, and of course, Diomedes, if he if he is being held up for admiration here, the cost has to the cost has to go on somebody else's account. And I think that that's the gods. Um, it, it, I think it's also interesting that when Diomedes prays for revenge, right, which we'll pro- we'll probably talk about in more detail in a minute. You know, Athena lifts the mist from his eyes. Uh, so there, there's an aspect to where, you know, all these human beings killing each other, it, to what extent is it actually any of their fault? Because they're they're all kind of laboring under kind of fundamental ignorance at best, you know, deception at worst, you know, just on the part of the gods themselves for whom all these mortals are chess pieces. Uh, I don't know, Coyle, Coyle what, do you, what do you think about that take on it? I, I mean, yeah, so obviously we are – one of the things we're getting is that war – is a place where you win glory, but it's right. it's just that, right? There there is a cost to it. Also, you are winning glory, uh, and someone else's is being cut off forever. Uh, I, it's I think that's obviously one of the things that the poem is doing. But uh, I I'm also sometimes a little vague on whether or not these guys know exactly who they're killing. I mean, some sometimes we're given the impression that kind of everyone knows everyone else. Uh, and and sometimes we're we're given the impression that no only only kind of the big names know each other, uh, so so uh, 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 Diomedes and we uh, at some point we should probably go back to the, the different pronunciations. We we talked about that beforehand, um, but uh, uh, Diomedes uh, uh, obviously knows you know Aeneas, uh, and he recognizes Hector, uh, and he recognizes mm-hmm. is it Glaucus uh, the uh, the the guy who is the descendant of his grandfather's friend. Uh, but you know, as when he kills uh, uh, when he kills these sons of uh, uh, of uh, the gentleman whose name I'm forgetting, uh, I don't know if we're supposed to know if if he was supposed to have known that that's what he had done, or if he was just killing someone else on the battlefield. Right, that kind of fog of war. Right, in in which case it wouldn't necessarily affect his character because he is just doing what you do in war. He just happens to be doing it better than anyone else at this point. Right, and they're trying to kill him. But it affects our perception of his character as readers, right? Or at least it, it does mine. 
Um, I, again, I think it. I think it depends on whether or not we're supposed to assume that he knows when I killed this guy, his line is extinct, uh, because that is a different thing than I'm killing this guy because he's on the other side and we're fighting a battle. At least I, I think that those should be two different levels of, of analysis. Yeah, Diomedes doesn't get that moment. Uh, if y'all have ever read All Quiet on the Western Front, there's that moment when the narrator has to hide in a crater and a French soldier jumps in with him and he stabs him and then they're stuck in no man's land for hours while this for, while this narrator's enemy dies and he actually pulls out his wallet to learn the man's name. Um, and you know, so by the end, he is just completely grief-stricken. Uh, Diomedes is in that rush of adrenaline at the beginning of that incident, right? Where he's, he's reacting, he's, he's guided by the gods and, and slaughtering the enemy, but he doesn't get that hours and hours and hours later to, uh, to reckon with who exactly all these people are. I guess, I guess that's reserved at the end for Hector's funeral. Right. Well, and, and there's also, I mean, there, there, Hopefully this this isn't too much of a tangent, but the the generational aspect of this uh, is a, a major point that keeps coming up through the Iliad. And I, I remember this is one of the things that jumped out at me the first time I read this, that uh, from the perspective of the characters of the Iliad, they are a lesser generation compared to uh, their parents and their grandparents and, and so on. So uh, there, there's a line... Uh, I don't know that we have the same line numbers, but uh, it's like line 335 or something like that, uh, where, where Diomedes and Aeneas are, are facing each other, and Diomedes picks up a rock. Uh, and uh, my translation says it's a tremendous feat. Uh, no two men uh, could hoist it, weak as men are now. Uh, mm-hmm. So there's even the idea that people reading or hear, hearing the Iliad, you know, hundreds of years uh, removed from the Trojan War are, are even worse than that generation. But that generation looks at themselves as having uh, degenerated or, or collapsed from uh, the generations before them. So when, when Diomedes is uh, in, in, in endowed by Athena with the strength of his father, uh, he, of course, he's going to kill people who are just like everyone else these days. Uh, just like if you know, I I got into a fight with my grandfather when he was in his prime, uh, in the middle of World War II. I mean, there, there's no way I would win that, uh, even if I were in you know better physical shape today. Just given the difference in generations and toughness and so on. At least that's the the perception I think, and that's also a theme here. It, it, it's not quite saying that this generation is kind of deserving what they're getting, but there is that sense of if they were as good as their ancestors, maybe they wouldn't have been in quite the same position. And Diomedes, for a moment, is as good as his ancestors. That comes up a bit later in the conversation between him and Glaucus, which maybe we should go ahead and talk about. Um, And I think Glaucus kind of pushes back against that generational um, idea. Uh, It's the beginning of book six. I have it at about line 145. Uh, why ask of my generation, as is the generation of leaves, so is that of humanity. The wind scatters the leaves on the ground, but the live timber burgeons with leaves again in the season of spring returning. So one generation of men will grow while another dies. So this idea that basically we're all equally mortal um, generations don't matter as much because more people will be born. Um, but also they, as you were saying just a second ago, bond over this connection between uh, their ancestors. So 
that's interesting and complex, I guess. Sure, sure. And I mean, that that is also clearly true, right? I mean, ev- everyone dies. Uh, although the the other side of that is, but there are some people uh, who who do these amazing things, which uh, I mean that I don't I don't remember if they talked about this in the first episode or not, right? The the, the choice that Achilles is given uh, of you know stay home and don't go to war, and by the time your your great grandkids come around, no one will remember who you were, or go to war and you'll die young, and everyone will know your name for all of eternity. I mean, there there are some people who we're still talking about, uh, and even though they also die just like everyone else. Yeah, I, I think that's something that um, that came up both in the first episode and uh, in the second episode, which I was on this idea of war and legacy, um, and who gets to have a legacy and who gets to understand or read other people's legacies, I think we're probably going to keep talking about um, those issues all the way through our coverage of the Iliad. So I, I don't want to get too far ahead of um, something we said we were going to go back to, which is the fact that uh, Diomedes or Diomedes, uh, we're switching back and forth, I think either pronunciation is accepted, uh, the fact that he can wound uh, gods like Apollo and Aphrodite. What's going on there? What do we make of that? Yeah, if there if there uh, if there isn't a Platonic dialogue about this, there there should be. But I I don't know that uh, the Iliad is the best place to get your theology of the ancient Greek gods. Um, uh, I I think uh, again if we if we just read this on its own. What we kind of come away with is the the only real difference between the gods uh, and mankind is the gods don't die, uh, they heal really quickly, uh, and they bleed uh, this ichor stuff, whatever it is that's not not blood, but it's something different that the the author keeps mentioning. Um, so uh, and and they they obviously have some other sorts of powers, like they can put on appearances of other people, and they can. Uh, uh, you know, move from one place to the other uh, more quickly and more easily than people can. Although apparently it's also sometimes visible to human beings. We have several occasions where, uh, uh, you know, people see gods moving around uh, and lights in the sky and those sorts of things. Uh, so the, uh, the, the differences between men and gods are complicated, but they're, they're not... They're not the sort of things that we think of the differences between man and uh, a divine being as being, right? Uh, we, we we wouldn't tend to think uh, if only I bumped into God, I could you know poke him with a steer uh, with with a spear, <laughs> right? Uh, uh, you know, crucifixion, biblical crucifixion aside, right? That that's uh, that's uh, that's that's not really in our catalog of of things that we that are characteristics or attributes of God. Uh, whereas for the Greeks, obviously, it, it 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 was at least in their fiction. Right, that's something I have to work really hard to impress on my students, like in Western Western Civ classes, as the extremely different conception of what divinity was prior to sort of the dominance of Christianity. Um, you know, because because even even my you know non-religious students, and you know, I. I have no idea what any of them actually, you know, believes unless for some reason they volunteer it. But even my non-religious students would probably think of, you know, a god of some 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 kind of omnipotence and omniscience as kind of the default. Where uh, Homer's gods are more more like kind of extremely powerful 
very deceptive and very, very self-centered children, um, which I feel like it, I don't I don't think Homer explicitly draws this comparison, but the way that uh, Aphrodite, when she gets her kind of arm pricked and Ares, who, who gets kind of legitimately seriously wounded by Diomedes at the end, um, the way they kind of immediately like pick up their toys and go home you know, go and complain to Zeus immediately about what's going on and try to get, try to get the higher authority figure to rein in Athena who has granted Diomedes all this, this, this power that they are, they do not appreciate. Uh, they don't, they don't like a fair fight. They want, they want to be the ones who are in charge on the battlefield. Um, that, uh, Diomedes for his part seems to be kind of, you know, try, trying to stay within the bounds of what he feels like Athena has granted him, license to do but he does seem to be enjoying it within those bounds yeah and i'd i'd have to go back and look at the specific passage the is isn't it the case that the only thing she really gives him is the ability to see like where the gods are and what they're doing like she doesn't give him a magic spear or anything like that like it's still what he is doing on the battlefield to other people he does to a god and it it injures the injures but does not kill them because they can't be killed she, she, the phrase she uses, at least in the translation I was looking at, is take, taking the mist away from his eyes. Uh, so, because so again, you know, he's kind of having the veil pulled back, so he's actually seeing the real world for a minute. Um, yeah, I've yeah. taken away the mist from your eyes that before now was there, so that you may well recognize the god and the mortal. Like the the idea being that you know, because there's there's other incidents that we read about, I think in these two books, where a god will disguise themselves as someone. Um, presumably what Athena is doing is just giving him those, those glasses from they live <laughs> where, uh, Diomedes can now see who is and is not actually who they pretend to be. Um, and with that kind of veil pulled aside that, that grants him apparently the only power he actually needs to kind of take the fight to the gods. Right. And, and even, uh, even, even the gods clearly operate by some kind of, restraints and boundaries that come from above them. Although I, I think this is more later in the Iliad, so I don't want to, I don't want to take away from anyone else, but the, the way they talk about fate uh, is as if it is, it is a yet higher power that even they are, are accountable to, or at least subservient to. Right. Uh, and, and we see some of that with uh, when, when Ares is, uh, you know, whining to Zeus about this mortal who, who kicked him around. Um, I forget exactly what the lines are, but it's, Something to the effect of uh, this is this is what happens to people who try to 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 God to you know try to get too big for their britches or whatever. I don't remember the exact line. But we do hear um, this bargaining and and talking about bigger things at play in Book Four. Also, when uh, Zeus and Hera are talking about who should intervene in the humans fighting and why, um, and she says. Well, if you let me do this, then I'll give you three cities of people who are devoted to me. So there's this sort of um, because bigger things are on the line, um, a, a sort of quid pro quo arrangement. Yeah, I found uh, I found Ares's complaint. If we want to get a little bit of that in there, uh, basically, we who are gods forever have to endure the most horrible hurts by each other's hatred as we try to give favor to mortals. It is your fault we fight since you brought forth this maniac daughter accursed, that is Athena, whose mind is fixed forever on unjust action. Um, for all the rest, as many as our gods on Olympus are obedient to you, and we have all rendered our, ourselves submissive. You say, yet you say nothing, and do you do nothing to check this girl, letting her go free? Uh, basically, you know, complaining, Athena's your favorite, right? Um, she's 
bending the rules that the rest of us have to abide by, and we want you to do something about it. Right, and then uh, and then later, uh, Zeus says basically, if you if you weren't my kid, um, I would drop you down uh, below the Titans, uh, deep yes. in the dark pit is the line that my translation uses. So again, uh, suggesting that there there is a there is a rule governing the you know parent child relationship there. Uh, which of course everyone knows Zeus is broken, uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, and presumably Ares would break if he had the physical power to do it. But there, there is a rule there that even Zeus is subservient to, right? There, there, there is this higher something uh, that that even the, uh, the the king of the gods has some kind of responsibility to obey. Right. Uh, can we switch gears for a little bit here and? Uh... And talk about some women, which I was uh, really happy to see after getting through book five and all the stabbing and nipple cleaving <laughs> and horrible, terrible things. Uh, just so so happy to see a conversation between women that wasn't just like stabbing people in the face. Uh, so in book six, Hector uh, is talking to his mother and... Uh, other women telling them to go pray to Athena and we get um, descriptions of kind of worship robes that Paris brings back and I found that description so interesting because of what it says about uh, Paris and and why everybody is here Um, and and we've already expressed our, our disdain for Paris so so maybe we can uh talk more about that uh, this is about 290 in my, uh, line 290 of book 6 in my edition. There lay the elaborately wrought robes, the work of Sidonian women, whom Alexandros, that's Paris, himself the godlike, had brought home from the land of Sidon, crossing the wide sea on that journey when he brought back also gloriously descended Helen. So I think that's so interesting because there's like this epic simile describing uh, the robes involved in the worship of women, and then, uh, and when he brought back also gloriously descended Helen. So, like, she's equated with a thing that is a spoil of war, they're the same thing, and the actual object, not just Helen becoming an object, but the actual object that is a spoil of war is also the creation of a group of female weavers. So I just found that really fascinating in these two books that are so dominated by uh, the masculine discourse and action of war. Uh, Did you guys notice that bit or did it strike you at all? Yeah, I, I what I noticed about it was actually, you know, Sidon is in approximately modern Lebanon or Syria. Um, I, I thought it was actually, well, what jumped out to me as I was reading it was, you know, Paris is really getting around. He goes to Sparta and steals Helen or has Helen escape with him. Uh, and at some point on the same trip actually goes all the way to the other end of the Mediterranean and back, um, which was this particular thing that jumped out at me but but yeah the uh the fact that it's clothes in particular woven by women is is also an interesting angle on that 
I, I like your point about the geography because I think, I mean, it just adds more fuel to the fire of Paris, like, really, right. <laughs> really being devoted to this dumb plan. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I guess I, I read that as uh, uh, this is yet another thing that Paris must have stolen. Uh, and and now they're going to try to give it to Athena and hope that it, you know, makes her back Diomedes off. That is a good point. Yeah, that's true. I mean, and, you know, pawn it off on yet another group of women to give to Athena. So, like, just mm-hmm. pa- passing the right. buck again and again. Yeah, nothing is ever Paris's fault. Um, and he does the absolute bare minimum to get by. Uh, the <laughs> Homer's portrait of that kind of slacker is, I mean, it, it, I'm amazed how true it still rings. <laughs> which, which is interesting because it, Hector, Hector at one point does say that he's a good fighter. Uh, mm-hmm. He's just lazy. So he's, he's, the, he's the equivalent of that student athlete who's got natural talent but won't come to practice. Yeah, yeah. Uh, this is almost the last line in uh, in book six. Uh, you're a good soldier. This is Hector talking to Paris. Uh, you're a good soldier, but you hang back of your own accord, refuse to fight. Uh, and that's why the heart inside me aches when I hear our Trojans heap contempt on you. Uh, because, you know, Hector knows that he is actually better than he is appearing to be. Um, which is kind of a modern self-help thing to say. Maybe, maybe it's supposed to be sarcasm. Uh, I don't know. I would not be surprised. I, I think he partly says that because... Paris says, I'm not a coward, I'm depressed, essentially. <laughs> um, about 3.35-ish. Hector, seeing you have scolded me rightly, not beyond measure, therefore I will tell, and you in turn understand and listen. It was not so much in coldness and bitter will toward the Trojans that I sat in my room, but I wished to give myself over to sorrow. Uh, but just now, with soft words, my wife was winning me over and urging me into the fight. So he says... Uh, it's not that I'm scared, I'm just depressed. And then Helen was going to tell me to fight. Um, But then Helen completely throws shade at Paris in this fantastic moment um, where she says, you know, that she doesn't absolve herself, she's guilty too, um, which we covered in the previous episode. But then she says, at 350, I wish I had been the wife of a better man than this is, one who knew modesty and all things of shame that men say, but this man's heart is no steadfast thing, nor yet will it be so ever hereafter, for that I think he shall take the consequence. So she just, like, lays it all out there. Yeah, I missed that. That's a nasty burn. (laughs) And, and Paris is also lying, too, right? Because as soon as, um, during, during the duel with Menelaus, as soon as he's swept back up to his chamber inside the walls of Troy, it's his idea to go to bed, right? Well, him, I mean, him and Aphrodite. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, it doesn't seem like he needs a ton of assistance, though. Right. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he, he says a couple of times in this book, you know, you, you go ahead back out to fight Hector, I am right behind you. Yeah, <laughs> I don't think we're supposed to take him seriously either of those times. No, I think that's one of the. I mean, it doesn't happen in the Iliad, but one of the. I, I think one of the crowning ironies of the Trojan War mythos is that it's somebody like Paris who kills somebody like Achilles. Yeah, with an arrow, though. So you know, with the the, the right. pansy weapon. Yeah, uh, with a, with a coward's ranged weapon that is actually redirected by the gods. So right. yeah. 
Uh, so I'm going to ask a dumb, I don't really understand Greek history question. I know that uh, that arrows are wussy weapons, but I don't understand why. Tell me why. Diomedes gets at it a little bit. Um, the kind of the idea is that, you know, the and, and it's, it's hard here because Homer is living in a different age from the age of the stories that he's actually recounting. Uh, so the, the it, you know, if there was an actual Achilles or Agamemnon or Odysseus, they lived in the Mycenaean era, uh, so-called from the, the archaeological finds that we have. Uh, Homer, of course, is living right at the end of the Greek Dark Age that follows on after it, probably you know, in the neighborhood of like 500 or so years after the actual Trojan War. Um, but there, there's apparently an ideal throughout that like really gets heavily emphasized in the classical era of Greek history with the, the phalanx and the hoplite, you know, the, the foot soldier, you know, a, a real man, somebody with real excellence and virtue is going to face you face to face. Uh, standing back and shooting at somebody where they can't get at you is a little low. Like you, you can be skilled at it, but if 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 you really have guts, you're going to kind of go toe to toe with somebody. Uh, Coil, is that your impression? Yeah, I, I think that's that's most of it. There, there's also the fact that bows and arrows just aren't very effective at this point. Yes. Uh, you have to have lots and lots and lots of arrows to kill uh, a man in armor, uh, but it. It doesn't necessarily take as much to wound him, so there's there, there's the issue of you're 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 not killing someone, you're just sort of hurting them, and more irritating than than anything. Uh, so you know you're you're basically hiding behind this this weapon that doesn't really do what what you should be doing in war. Uh, right. So there, there's the the courage, the the lack of courage, and the lack of effectiveness together. Right. Uh, and that's what. Oh, go ahead. Oh, I was say, I don't. I don't know my my medieval history well enough, but I mean, it's it's a while before a bow and arrow is is considered an actual worthwhile weapon of war, right? I mean, it's. I, don't, I Jordan, you'd know that better than I do. Yeah, I mean, it, and a lot of it does have to do with how effective they are. I mean, there's there's bows. You know, the bow and arrow is one of the most ancient weapons there is, uh, but it's it's probably well into the. I mean, if you really want to lethal range weapon in the greek world it's going to be the sling i right. mean like david and goliath uh the, the the bow and arrow is you know you can use it for hunting that kind of thing but against a man and 80 pounds of bronze armor it's uh you got to have a lot of luck and that's what what you're describing is what diomedes complains about right it's like i didn't even see the guy who shot me and all he did was hit me in the armpit where i'm not armored that's that's you know th- there's a reason that <laughs> diomedes to, to us overreacts so much to, to getting wounded that way. Right. That, that makes a lot of sense. Thank you for uh, that explanation. Uh, so I know we want to spend some time talking about uh, Hector and Andromache, but since that is um, near the end of the action, is there anything else uh, that we should cover before we get to that? I think we're pretty good to go. <laughs> uh, yeah, we got to we got to talk for an extended period of time about Diomedes, so I'm I'm good. <laughs> and rail on Paris a little bit. Yeah, railing on Paris is uh, always super fun, and I'm sure we will continue to do it for ten more episodes or however many of these there are. Uh, so I I started uh, I started the episode by saying that you both. Uh, 
said you were excited to record this episode because you wanted to talk about Diomedes, Diomedes. Uh, the reason why I signed up to facilitate this episode is because I wanted to talk about this moment between Hector and his wife Andromache and their baby son uh, near the end of book six, which to me is... Um, really emotional and human and stands in pretty stark contrast to a lot of the rest of books five and six. Um, first, Andromache kind of marks herself as interesting because she doesn't go pray with Athena um, like the rest of the women that we already talked about. Instead, uh, she goes and mourns and cries at the city wall uh, with her wet nurse and her baby. Uh, so we have not just a, a lone woman, but like a lone woman accompanied by the womanliest symbols of womanhood that there are. Uh, it's this very personal, very feminine um, image, and uh, I, I was really struck by it. What did... Um, what did you think about it? I know Jordan, you you have a a new tiny baby, and and said you had some things to say about this scene. Oh, absolutely. Um, e even when I was single, I admired Hector as kind of um, you know, in in so far as any again as any Homeric hero is a hundred percent admirable, and n none of them is a hundred percent admirable, right? I mean, I think we've. I think we've inserted that fine print. Uh, but insofar as any Homeric figure is admirable, Hector sort of stands out. He, he's almost like the embodiment in a single character of what everybody stands to lose. Um, you know, he is he is a man who's devoted to his city. Uh, he is afraid sometimes. He gets called out earlier in the book for freezing up. Uh, but he does take leadership. He does own responsibility. He's actually shouldering more of the weight of Paris's decisions than Paris is. Uh, and he has... Dutiful toward his wife and children, he he shows actual affection to them, which is not something you get from a ton of the other characters uh, in in either the Iliad or the Odyssey. I mean, the Odysseus may be one of the only other one of the only other people who kind of approaches this level of um, not just dutiful devotion, but actual like affection and what would appear to us to be what what we think of as love. Yeah, um, I, I found that really refreshing. Um... Yes, right. especially as opposed to like an Achilles. <laughs> right. Right. Although, to to be fair, he is the only one we actually see at home. Yes. Right. We. I don't. I don't think. I mean, we. I guess we know that Agamemnon doesn't get along with his wife because of what happens later, uh, and obviously Menelaus and Helen don't get along. But, you know, we we don't see Achilles with oh whatever what his wife's name is, which I'm not remembering now. Uh, I mean, we just, we don't see anyone else in a domestic setting, but you're right. I mean, uh, because of that, I think he stands out that much more. Right. And that, that's what I meant by, you know, he, he's sort of like, is this, this window into what, you know, all, all these fathers who are having their legacies destroyed that we talked about at the beginning of the episode, that that's, that's Hector, right? right? He, he is part of his father's legacy. And of course he's got his own son who we, we know it's not going to, you know, there's that bitter irony of, Hector praying over his son that he'll be a better man than him, which just about that. <laughs> I think that's a, a prayer. Any father of a son can identify with. Um, but also because we know that Hector is ultimately going to lose and it's not going to turn out well for his son. That, that That's the, the 
poignancy and the range of emotion that Homer evokes in this little incident, both in the person of Andromache and the her personality as a woman and the setting, you know, as, as Victoria really well emphasized the very womanly womanliness of, of the setting that she is introduced in and uh, Hector's affection toward her and toward his son. I mean, who hasn't seen a father throw his kid up in the air, you know, and also the, the humanity of the child who is scared of his helmet. I mean, it, it's, yeah, let's talk about that. What does that yeah. mean? I just, I just kind of took it like little kids are scared of weird things. <laughs> well, well uh, yes. My, my daughter was terrified of beards. Yes, and, and babies are often um, scared of men who are tall with deep voices too. But I, I think mm-hmm. in the context of, as you said, this broader conversation we've been having about fathers and sons and legacies, the fact that um, the text essentially tells us he doesn't recognize him because he's wearing his battle helmet – um, mm-hmm. is is interesting. He Hector in battle is a different person than Hector the father to a certain extent. Right. Yeah, that's a really good point. I don't know. Uh, I don't know if the helmet is supposed to be obscuring his face uh, so that he can't see who it is, or like you said, it's just that he is he is just afraid because it is different and weird. I I I, I don't know that we have the. Uh, I don't know that we we know from the text. Well, all that all that Homer specifically mentions is the bronze and the crest with its horsehair nodding dreadfully. Um, I think a lot of Mycenaean helmets were open faced. Um, I, 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 I'm not super familiar with like the archaeological finds on that, but the the illustrations and the reconstructions I've seen are pretty open faced. But there's enough weird gugas kind of soldered onto it that it would you know in order to terrify enemies that of course it's going to overpower the emotions of a baby sure yeah that that seems fair that there's a lot of strange things sticking off of it and so it even if he can see his face it's disconcerting uh, mm-hmm. i i also want to note that andromache speaks fairly directly to this legacy idea uh, when she's talking about not wanting to lose Hector to battle, uh, this is 4.10 or so in my edition. Uh, for me, it would be far better to sink into the earth when I have lost you, for there's no other consolation for me after you have gone to your destiny, only grief, since I have no father, no honored mother. So this this legacy is disjointed, um, both for her as a woman outside of the context of battle, and presumably also for their son if his father is to die. Uh, I I really this scene to me is is such a microcosm of so many other things that are going on um, in in books five and six. Mm-hmm. Yeah, especially in the setting of just having talked to Paris and Helen, right? We we see the people who caused the problem, uh, and then we we see what the results of their actions are going to be. That's a fantastic point that I hadn't really thought of. The idea that like we get this dysfunctional, snipey relationship, and then we get a relationship that seems much. Um, much deeper and much grounded, much more grounded in um, emotion and bond. And and we see that it's going to be just trashed by these awful people. Yeah. 
Man, yeah, that's that, a bummer. Yeah, that that dialogue where you know Hector so clearly foresees what's going to happen to her, um, and then he you know he basically just says, "Well, we got to get back to work." <laughs> that's so so utterly painful to read, especially in in the contrast right there in the same book with uh, you know Paris and Helen. Especially, um, too, we've already mentioned what happens at the very end when when Paris um, goes back out to fight and Hector says, um, Hector kind of tries to absolve Paris. Um, once you think about that in the face of Hector's own nuanced emotional relationship, um, the fact that this person is giving a pep talk to this other person just seems so sad and gross and undeserved and like life is completely unfair. But I, I think maybe the point of the Iliad is that everything is unfair. I would not disagree. <laughs> uh, what do you think, Coyle? Am I just being an overly emotional lady about these relationships? I don't think so. Or, or if you are, it's because Homer wants us all to do that, right? Or to, to have those kinds of reactions. Uh, uh, I mean, the, I think this scene is is obviously intended to paint Hector in the best possible light. Uh, which you know, when we remember that this is a Greek poem about a war between the Greeks and the Trojans. I think is, is even more impressive, right? It, it is sad that the other side is going to lose uh, and that Hector is going to die and that his, his family is going to be destroyed, right? Uh, uh, it, it would have been certainly easier just to have written Hector off as, you know, some kind of monster. Um, and, uh, you know, he, he deserves what is coming, but instead there's that, like you said, that nuance and that complexity that, that generates sympathy from us. Yeah. I, that's, Definitely one of my favorite things about this text is how much it does not take the easy way out in terms of good guys and bad guys and war. I think it, it really works hard uh, to say that that war is bad, but that people involved in war are still human people with relationships and motivations and sometimes both those relationships and those motivations are flawed, but that you as a reader cheapen it if you just say, oh, the Greeks are the good guys and the Trojans are the bad guys. Well, and, and it shows, I mean, I think one of the, the big overall themes of, of the Iliad is the the collapse of tradition and custom. Uh, it shows that it's happening on the Trojan side also, right? The 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 institutions that bring stability in society, uh, and the the customs that sort of bind us together, uh, are starting to fail in in part because of this war, uh, and that's that's hitting both sides sort of equally. Uh, just as you've got the the quarrel between uh, Agamemnon and Achilles over this this traditional idea about prizes and trophies and who's more important and does it matter if you're a better warrior uh, on the Trojan side, you, you have the same sort of cracks starting to grow, right? The, the, the same kind of uh, breakdown of traditions are, are, are starting to show up. Uh, we, we see again, even especially with Paris and Helen, uh, but Hector and his family can see that this is coming for them too. I, I was just going to say the fact that Hector is aware of it makes it that much worse. 
Right. He he does try to go out on a positive note, right? Doesn't he say something like, uh, maybe, yeah, we'll we'll set all this to rights someday if Zeus will ever let us raise the wine bowl of freedom high in our halls, uh, high to the gods of cloud and sky who live forever. Once we drive these Argives, uh, geared for battle, out to Troy, uh, out of Troy. Yeah, that's that's fairly weak though. After his conversation with Andromache, in which he he sees what's happening happening in the end to her. Right. It's the kind of thing that would work on Paris, though. <laughs> well, that's a low sure. bar. Uh, a, a very low bar. Well, especially, too, I think after um, all we've said about the nature of the immortals, the fact that he tries to make this sort of troop rallying speech, but in the middle of it is if Zeus ever grant it, um, which seems to be based on everything we've read thus far pretty much the only thing that matters here or maybe not the only thing that matters but the thing that matters most yeah and there's the basic again the kind of deceit or just the inscrutability of the gods like just you know hector foresees that it's not going to end well if it's going to end well he has no idea why or what what it would be that would change zeus's mind It is a bummer. <laughs> All right. Well, I'm I'm not sure uh, it's not going to be a bummer from where we are in the text. So uh, I think that's a, a fairly decent place to end. And uh, others of us will continue our discussion um, of Hector and Andromache in the next episode when we talk about books seven through nine. Uh, so thanks Coyle and Jordan for talking to me today and uh, thanks listeners for listening to Core Curriculum which is a production of the Christian Humanist Radio Network Kristen Philippic is our press liaison thanks for listening and please join us again next time